welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Friday, December 22nd. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to all of our viewers and listeners. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 77 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be joined by Craig Mokhyber, a human rights lawyer who recently resigned in protest from his position as the director of the New York Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. And we'll also be joined by Hamam Farah, a Toronto-based psychotherapist from Gaza and whose family uh, friends were killed this past week by Israeli airstrikes on the Holy Family Catholic Church in Gaza. We have a very full show for you today, so I'll keep my news update as brief as possible. Quote, the U.S.-Israeli genocidal war in Gaza hit a grim milestone on Thursday with the death toll in the territory expected to now have reached 20,000 people since October 7th, reports our colleague Maureen Claire Murphy. Meanwhile, a new report by the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, a coalition of 23 UN and non-governmental agencies, says that the entire population in the Gaza Strip faces an imminent risk of famine if Israel does not stop its genocide. The group says that, quote, hostilities, including bombardment, ground operations, and besiegement of the entire population have caused catastrophic levels of acute food insecurity across the Gaza Strip. The report adds that, quote, the increased nutritional vulnerability of children, pregnant and breastfeeding women, and the elderly is a particular source of concern. The Famine Monitoring Group says that more than 90% of the population in the Gaza Strip was estimated to face high levels of acute food insecurity. Amongst these, more than 40% of the population are classified as being at an emergency food insecurity level, and more than 15%, or nearly 400,000 Palestinians, are at a catastrophic level risk of starvation. The World Food Program's chief economist said that, quote, it doesn't get any worse, and added, quote, I have never seen something at the scale that is happening in Gaza and at this speed, according to Al Jazeera. The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said on Thursday that should the situation continue, it is predicted that between now and early February, quote, Gaza's population will be the highest share of people facing high levels of acute food insecurity ever classified by the IPC initiative for any given area or country since its establishment in 2004. Meanwhile, Israeli airstrikes, attacks, and shelling continue across the Gaza Strip. On Thursday, Israeli forces raided the Palestine Red Crescent Society's ambulance center in Jabalia in the north of Gaza for the second time in as many days. Staff members and paramedics were arrested and taken to unknown locations. On Wednesday, the PCRS said that, quote, intense artillery shelling persisted in the vicinity of the center, accompanied by gunfire from Israeli snipers. The World Health Organization stated on Thursday that northern Gaza had been left without a functional hospital due to the lack of fuel, staff, and supplies. Only nine out of 36 health facilities are partially functional in the whole of Gaza, <clears throat> excuse me, with no functional hospital. <clears throat> sorry, in the north. 
Al-Ahli Hospital is still treating patients, but not admitting new ones, along with Al-Shifa, Al-Auda, and Al-Sabaha hospitals. These hospitals are still sheltering thousands of displaced people, the UN said. And the Director General of the World Health Organization said that Gaza, quote, is already experiencing soaring rates of infectious disease outbreaks. Diarrhea cases among children aged five, uh, under five are 25 times what they were before the conflict. Such illnesses can be lethal for malnourished children, more so in the absence of functioning health services. And the Palestinian health ministry in Gaza reported on Thursday that an Israeli sniper shot and killed a female worker in the besieged Al-Auda hospital in northern Gaza. Those trapped inside the hospital, quote, are in a state of terror, sniping, arrest, and torture without water, without food, and without medicine, the ministry said. For much more detail, background, and critical context on these stories, read our colleague Maureen Murphy's latest roundup, Gaza Starves as Death Toll Climbs Past 20,000, at electronicintifada.net. Let's now turn to our first guest, Craig Mulkyber. Craig is an international human rights lawyer who resigned his position in October as director of the UN Human Rights Office in New York. In his resignation letter, which went viral, Mulkyber charged that, quote, once again, we are seeing a genocide unfolding before our eyes and the organization that we serve appears powerless to stop it. Craig, it's such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being with us on the live stream. It's great to be with you all. Thank you, Noor. Well, let's begin by having you tell us why you resigned from the UN. Uh, I know this is this is a story that you've told a, a few times over the last month. Um, but how does uh, you know? And and also, how does what's happening in Gaza fit the definition of genocide? Yeah. Well, I actually uh, raised my concerns in the late winter, early spring of this year, <clears throat> following a series of uh, atrocities that were happening on the West Bank. Uh, and leading up to and including the pogrom that occurred in Hawara uh, on the West Bank and a series of Israeli assaults on, on communities there. And I thought at the time that uh, many in the senior political leadership in the UN were whispering in a situation that deserved a scream. Uh, and I was speaking out quite publicly as I had on human rights situations all around the globe for 32 years uh, at, at the UN. Uh, but this case became a little bit different because there was, as there often is for UN officials who speak out uh, on Israeli violations, an orchestrated campaign by a, a group of really vicious Israel lobby groups led by some organizations that had been set up specifically for the purpose of harassing UN staff uh, and officials who speak out on, on um, Israeli violations. And, uh, you know, distinct from the way things have been handled in the past, there was a kind of wave of trepidation that went across the UN. Uh, and instead of standing up on principle, they uh, asked me to remain silent, which is something I didn't want to do. I hadn't been used to doing. I've been never asked in the past to censor myself. Imagine, you know, a UN human rights official being asked not to critique human rights violations committed by a member state. So I uh, entered into a conversation then with the High Commissioner for Human Rights and others, and I said that I thought that we were on a dangerous downward spiral, that a trend had developed over a, a, a period of time that was getting worse and worse, whereby there was this kind of fear, this trepidation about um, doing our job and criticizing violations perpetrated by powerful states and their allies. And this was 
most obvious when it came to Israel and the United States and uh, uh, and uh, and a few others, and that the organization was making a mistake by lowering its voice when these attacks by these lobby groups or uh, demarches from Western states um, took place, and that what we really needed to do was to raise our voice louder, that it was our mandate, after all, to speak truth to power, to, to take the position of the victim, as Camus uh, uh, told us to do, um, and that we were empowering this strategy on the part of the enemies of human rights, really, uh, by silencing ourselves whenever that happened and that I wasn't comfortable with a gag order being put on me after all of those years. And so at that time, I indicated my intention to leave in the coming months. And of course, the situation then got much worse on the ground, both in the West Bank, but obviously beginning in October in in Gaza. And that's uh, in October when I penned my letter setting out, I think, with great clarity what I thought was wrong with this dangerous trend in the organization, with its positioning on Palestine generally, uh, where it was falling down and where it needed to change, and, and especially to get back to the issue of, of root causes. And as we all know now, uh, those that alarm bell on genocide turned out to be horrifically correct. Uh, and the situation has only gotten worse since then. Craig, if I can ask you, you said that you were basically told to keep silent. Um, Sadly, I don't think that will surprise a lot of people, given the state of uh, the, the discourse in official circles in Israel. But I'm just curious, how does that work? Do you get, do you, is it a quiet conversation in a hallway? Is it an email? Is there a paper trail? Who is, who actually, how, how is this communicated to you? This is a this was a kind of panicked series of uh, messages that came in through text uh, apps and through email and so on from senior leadership uh, um, figures who were being um, first being demarched by the Israeli ambassador by the, the, the Americans. Um, there was a whole sort of media campaign, one of the, you know, the usual smear campaign, right? That if you speak up, then you are. Uh, you know, an anti-Semite, a supporter of terrorism, and so on. So that was making them, uh, I think, very nervous, as it had in uh, in the past. And uh, just basically, uh, and this had never happened to me before. I mean, you're talking 32 years. So I was a little surprised at this as well. Um, and uh, I was told that I couldn't speak out on Palestine in particular, and that I couldn't say anything publicly unless it had been issued by the Secretary General or the High Commissioner for Human Rights, but only on this situation. There was no gag order given on, on other situations. Wow. Uh, the, we want to get to your analysis of how the situation in Gaza fits the, 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 the legal definition of genocide. But you were working in the UN Human Rights Office, uh, which, of course, is one of the key instruments of the UN to raise human rights issues internationally. But there is another office in the United Nations that has a specific role of raising the alarm bell when there is a risk of genocide. And that office is headed by a, a Kenyan diplomat called Alice Wairimu Nderitu. And she and her office, she her, her position is the uh, special advisor to the Secretary General on the prevention of genocide. And it is in her mandate, which is given by the Security Council, that she is supposed to monitor 
situations around the world and raise the alarm where there is a risk of genocide in order to stop genocide from happening. In other words, her job is not to wait until no one disputes there's a genocide and then speak out. Her job is to speak out before there's a genocide. And yet uh, she has remained and her office have remained silent about uh, genocide. In fact, at the beginning uh, of this uh, situation, she issued a statement taking Israel's side, basically, and supporting all of Israel's unverified claims. And I want to show you an article that appeared in the the Times of London. uh, And Tamara, of course, is always there to to, uh, help us uh, to show these things. And it it, uh, says that there is uproar within the United Nations, within UN headquarters, that there are calls on her to resign. There is a uh, petition, a change.org petition. It has something like 18,000 signatures calling her uh, on her to do her duty or to resign. And uh, But I want to point to a specific part in this article, which is that At the daily UN briefings, reporters have been asking the representative of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres why uh, Ms. Nderitu has been silent. And the spokesperson for the Secretary General, Stefan Dujaric, says the Secretary General continues to have full confidence in the work of Ms. Nderitu. And of course, by work, he means in action because she has done nothing as far as we know. What What is going on here? Well, of course, the Secretary General has full confidence in the work of uh, Alison Doritu and of the Genocide Prevention Office because they are following his orders. And that is exactly how that office was designed. I was actually involved uh, in the original discussions about setting up such an office in 2004. Um, So this was during the time of uh, Kofi Annan as Secretary General, and there was going to be a a major landmark presentation by Kofi Annan um, at the Stockholm Forum. So a very, very visible uh, moment at which Kofi Annan wanted to, one, he wanted to apologize for the failings of the UN in Rwanda and Srebrenica, because you remember that during those genocides, uh, Kofi Annan was the Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping in charge of the UN's peacekeeping presence in both of those places, both of which failed miserably uh, in in those horrific assaults. And he he came to feel very responsible and guilty about that. So at the time, he had a senior advisor and a speechwriter, a guy named Ed Mortimer, who was quite an extraordinary uh, person, who reached out to me. I happened to be in charge of the the New York office at that time. I I had since left and came back, but I, I happened to be in charge of it at that time. And he said, not only does the secretary general want to apologize, but he wants to make an announcement on what he's going to do to make sure this never happens in the future. So what I said to them was that we had done an analysis in the human rights office about the disconnect between the human rights program, the norms and standards, the monitoring that goes on there on the one hand, and what happens in the peace and security and the security council side of the work on the other hand, and explained how that disconnect explained a lot of the failure of the UN's actions when it comes to threats of of mass atrocities. Um, This was after an independent special rapporteur, a guy called Bakwadi Njiaye, 
uh, had gone to Rwanda months before the genocide and warned it was unfolding and was completely ignored by the Security Council, but also by the political offices in, in the UN. And you know, six months later, the, the machetes were, were flying and the genocide was underway. And so what we proposed was, let's establish an independent special rapporteur on the prevention of genocide that would be supported by the UN Human Rights Office with all of its monitoring and data capacities and so on. Uh, early warning capacities, but would report, be able to uh, give reports directly to the Security Council to close that gap so that it could act without it being politically controlled. And Kofi Annan went to Stockholm and he announced it exactly as we had laid it out. But then the political side of the House got a hold of it. And they said, no, 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 it, it can't be an independent rapporteur. It has to be a special advisor in the Secretariat so that we can control it. So it doesn't say something that's going to upset particular member states. And it can't have access to the Security Council. It can report to the Secretary General, and we'll see about briefings from, uh, from time to time. And it can't be supported by the Human Rights Office. They said genocide is essentially a political question, not a human rights question. So it's going to be supported uh, by the Secretariat in New York, the political, the political side of the House. So by design, it is a weak, non-independent, politically controlled office. Yes, Alison Dorito should resign. That's a massive failing in her case. But her resignation won't fix the problem. The problem is this politicization of human rights questions by the Secretary General in New York. It's not the first time. We have a special advisor on children in armed conflict that gets data from the Human Rights Office and others every year about violations regarding children in armed conflict in Israel and Palestine. But is, is silenced by the 38th floor, by the Secretary General's office, and by powerful member states, and can be silenced because it's not an independent office. It's a unit of the Secretariat set up precisely to be a politically controlled entity. And that, and so it is with Alison Dritzman. That office, the genocide office, I mean, the previous inhabitants were prominent human rights leaders who tried to do something meaningful with it. People uh, like... Um, um, Adama Dieng, a Senegalese, a prominent Senegalese human rights lawyer, Francis Deng, a prominent Sudanese human rights lawyer, Juan Mendez from Argentina, another prominent human rights lawyer. But they were so constrained by those offices that you saw through time it became less and less relevant. And the appointment of uh, Alison Dritu, who was not, didn't come from the international human rights community, she's a political person, a conflict resolution uh, uh, profile appointed by, by Guterres in, in 2020 shows you that you know, it just, it's just a, an overtime of diminishing of any capability that would have existed in an office. I think that office should be dismantled, its staff should be assigned elsewhere, uh, and that needs to be moved into the independent part of the UN Human Rights Program. We have special rapporteurs, commissions of inquiry, uh, people who can actually act with principle without being controlled by the, by the Secretary General or the political office. So it's very much like having a smoke alarm a genocide alarm, but with no batteries in it. It's it's like having a, a, a smoke alarm with no batteries that's locked in the closet, so it can't make any noise mm -hmm. you know, in, yeah. in, in any case. And that's worse than nothing at all, in my view, because it means that the alarm, when the alarm uh, is rung, is going to be a political decision based upon triangulation between where the powers are. Uh, and if it's an ally of the United States, for example, there's very little hope that you will see a principled approach. 
Craig, we um, I'm just looking at uh, some breaking news here. The UN Security Council, uh, this is according to Reuters, just approved a toned down bid to boost humanitarian aid in Gaza, calling for urgent steps, quote, to create the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities nice. after a week of delays in negotiations to avoid a veto by the U.S. Um, what is the significance of this? very watered down resolution does it have any bite will it will it stop the genocide that israel is continuing yeah yeah this it hurts to hear that news i knew that was coming they were scheduled to meet 11:30 just as we were getting organized for this uh for this show the us has been delaying a vote on an earlier draft resolution for over a week uh trying to buy time for israel as it tried to water down and negotiate the text uh, this text uh, that as it's been adopted, and I haven't seen the final version, but if it's the one that I was seeing this morning, is bad news. You know, the original text here was supposed to include a suspension of hostilities. Um, it was supposed to include uh, a condemnation of violations of humanitarian law. It was supposed to um, have a UN aid monitor included in it. And overnight, we learned that um, the UN, after all of these efforts at delay, during which, by the way, thousands more uh, have been injured or died or, uh, or, or, you know, under the rubble or killed or by the Israelis. Um, and, um, and instead, you know, they created this, this watered down is a kind term that it's been hollowed out. It's not going to have any meaningful, uh, impact. we got no suspension of hostilities. The UN aid monitor is turned into a special coordinator, which is a very similar mechanism to what I described with these uh, special advisor offices, politically controlled, look at the UN special coordinator for the occupied territories, which is, uh, I mean, it's another UN institution that should be dissolved because it does not take a principled position. If you just listen to the statements of the current um, special coordinator, you'll know that this is a, a, an office that is not on the side of, of international law or justice or, uh, or human rights. So the, the idea is to appoint a special coordinator, not a UN aid monitor that could actually facilitate more humanitarian uh, aid in there. And the problem with this is it gets, you know, the U.S. has engaged in a lot of what I've called fig leaf harvesting. And this is another fig leaf that allows them to avoid domestic and global con condemnation for its complicity in the genocide in, in Gaza. They will spin it as an opportunity to increase humanitarian aid. And it may increase humanitarian aid by a slight amount, but not to the more, uh, you know, before this, this um, assault uh, began, Gaza, because of the siege, was relying on 500 trucks. Uh, a week. Now it's been entirely destroyed. So, so this, these are these really are, are fig leaves. It's going to be holding five hundred trucks a day. A Sorry, day. five hundred. Yeah, yeah. And now they're they're at at, uh, at less than ten percent of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so these are these are bad gestures, and it also could mean that since the Security Council has acted, they can't use the United for Peace resolution in the General Assembly to get the world to vote on a resolution to, again, isolate the U.S. and show uh, that it is that it is, in, is contradicting the, the position of the entire globe on, on these issues. It's a resolution that was drafted behind closed doors, uh, essentially overnight, between the U.S. and the UAE, and in direct consultation with the Israelis. And we knew for days now that what they were trying to achieve was to get out, especially the suspension of hostilities, to change it into language that, that basically means, and this is the way it was being described before the text was drafted, 
that Israel can decide when an appropriate moment has arrived at which it's okay to, uh, to let up on the hostilities. And one has to ask, how do you have meaningful humanitarian assistance as the bombs are dropping and the snipers are shooting and the genocide is continuing? It's, it's less than zero in my view. Craig, let's talk about, we're using this word genocide. And you, of course, have called what's happening in Gaza genocide, but you're not alone. Uh, as early as October 13th, Palestinian human rights groups called on world governments to urgently intervene to protect the Palestinian people against genocide on the 15th of October. So we're talking about just a week after the events of October 7th. 800 scholars and practitioners of international law and genocide studies, including prominent Holocaust scholars, signed a statement, uh, quote, to sound the alarm about the possibility of the crime of genocide being perpetrated by Israeli uh, forces against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. You've mentioned the UN's independent human rights mechanism, the special rapporteurs. They have issued several several similar calls, including one warning about, quote, a genocide in the making uh, in Gaza. And of course, as Nora noted, you wrote, uh, in October, once again, we are seeing a genocide unfolding before our eyes. So this warning is going out from many, many people. But let's break it down very simply. What is genocide and how is what's happening in Gaza genocide? Well, and note that that warning is coming out not from editorial writers, but from human rights lawyers, genocide and Holocaust experts, um, people who, who spend their days and nights working on these specific questions. And that's because what has struck us all so much is the, the degree to which the Israeli stated intent and their actions on the ground mirror so horrifically the specific language in the UN Genocide uh, Convention, because this is a legal question. It's not a question of opinion, as it's often uh, projected in, uh, in Western media, at least. The Genocide Convention sets out very specifically the acts of genocide and the required intent of, of genocide. And, you know, uh, we know the acts include killing, serious harm, causing uh, bodily harm, and this thing of deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring out the destruction of a group in whole or in part. And the intention that's required is an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, uh, racial, or religious group as, as such. Um, so, you know, we've rarely seen a case where all of those things are, are ticked, right? These acts are being perpetrated by a state against another specific group, in this case, Palestinians. It's not like they're just, you know, this is happening to everybody in, in, inside Israel and Palestine. It's being directed against Palestinians as a group. Uh, you have large scale killing, right? Now we're at 20,000 confirmed uh, deaths. You know, people exterminated in a matter of just a few weeks. I mean, the level of murder is, is astounding. Eight or 9,000 children, 6,000 women, 5,000 men, um, countless whole, families, multi-generational families, exterminated and erased from the public register. More than 50,000, probably more than 60,000 now injured, and many thousands more still under the rubble, dying of disease, and now, by the way, dying also of starvation. This is the wholesale slaughter of an imprisoned civilian population. Remember, Gaza is this 
large open air prison, uh, and it's and it's really horrifically shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, so this is extermination. Whole neighborhoods raised to the ground. Massive ordinance on, you know, densely populated civilian areas, homes, refugee camps, hospitals, clinics, ambulances, schools, humanitarian facilities. All of that. Uh, and then the second point in the convention: serious harm, physical and mental. You know, okay. Thousands have been wounded, maimed, denied medical care, denied food, water, medicine, shelter, uh, um, constant bombing and sniper attacks. People widowed, orphaned, exposed to disease, terrorized every day with these, these explosions. Clearly, that has been ticked. Then you've got this thing, which is, which is often more challenging, but here is, is so clear that it's, it's just caused genocide scholars to gasp which is this line in the convention that talks about deliberately inflicting, inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. It's a uniquely clear case, right? 2.3 million civilians interned in Gaza by Israel, most of them poor, most of them food insecure already before October, most of them children, most of them already refugees, it's imposed a closure on Gaza since 2005, deliberately re restricting food and water and sanitation and medicine and construction and free movement, all the elements of a decent life, and then periodically launching these military attacks against them. And of course, since October, Israel has made the siege total. So, you know, intentionally and in saying that they're doing it as they're doing it, cutting off all food and water, uh, fuel, all the essentials necessary, and another grave breach of international humanitarian law. Two million women, children, and men forcibly displaced uh, since then. And, you know, as you've noted in the past, I mean, Israel has not been shy about the deliberate nature of their collective punishment of the civilian population when they do these things, putting the population on a diet, mowing the lawn, these kinds of horrific uh, statements. They've destroyed homes and schools and hospitals and churches and mosques and courthouses, food production, civilian infrastructure, refugee camps, you know, UN facilities, um, cemeteries, crops. Uh, and so... So here you have a situation where you could not have a clearer case of this Article 2C of the Genocide Convention on creating these kinds of conditions uh, of life. But there is nothing more striking, Ali, than the question of intent in this case. Because what I've been saying since uh, October, well, well, first, you know, the International Court of Justice says you can infer intent from conduct because it's often very hard to prove genocidal intent. And so certainly, you know, after 75 years of these ethnic purges carried out by Israel, in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and now in Gaza, that's already compelling evidence that what they're doing, intending to do now in Gaza is another ethnic purge. And I think that's been, been proven. But even beyond that, you don't have to infer. Because there has been such a climate of impunity granted to Israel for decades, underwritten by the United States, the United Kingdom, some European uh, countries as well, this has led to a situation where they believe they will not be held accountable. And as such, they are declaring their genocidal intent openly, publicly, and on the record since the beginning, right? This is not one of the usual cases where, you, as I've been saying, where you have to dig through dusty government archives to find communications that prove intent. They are saying it publicly. And there, there are organizations now that are compiling all of the genocidal statements of uh, Israeli leaders that number now in the hundreds. Right? This is very rare in cases of, uh, of genocide. Um, and here we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about some occasional rogue soldier. We're talking about the Israeli president, the prime minister, 
cabinet officials, senior military officials, these think tanks affiliated with the government, you know, not to mention the Israeli media, dehumanizing Palestinians, which is an element of this, that the people in Gaza are animals, subhuman, Nazis, terrorists, cancer, ants, vermin. This is all very familiar language to people who work on, on genocide. And then declaring what their intention is, that they will wipe out all of Gaza. They, they will not distinguish between civilians and combatants because there are no civilians in these genocidal statements. Uh, to, to raise Gaza to the ground, to reduce it to rubble, uh, to bury the Palestinians alive, and explicitly to carry out another Nakba, the original uh, genocide perpetrated against the Palestinians. And of course, we've all seen that Netanyahu himself has repeatedly, not just once, invoked this biblical verse on the Amalek that commands the uh, that the entire population be wiped out, that none be spared, men, women, children, suckling babies and livestock, right? In other words, they have committed themselves to a genocide and stated the intent clearly. And the, and the thing here that's different, Ali, about just, you know, bad statements made by leaders during wars, for example, is that Israel actually has the capacity to carry out genocide uh, in, in all of Palestine. They've constructed this powerful apparatus of repression. It's firmly entrenched in all of Palestine and Israel. It includes military occupation and assault forces, abusive police contingents, uh, ruthless intelligence agencies, walls and fences and barbed wire, all of the advanced monitoring and surveillance technologies, drones, autonomous weapons, uh, violent armed settlers armed by the Israeli government as well, this whole system of repressive laws, uh, apartheid laws in, in the country. So all Palestinians and all of historic Palestine are entirely subjugated, entirely vulnerable, forcibly contained and interned, defenseless except for um, uh, efforts of the resistance and you know subject to regular attacks both by Israeli military forces and by the settlers. They have the means to carry out genocide and they're deploying all of those means as, as we speak. But right. the last piece on this, let me just finish, is that genocide scholars have these uh, these series of 10 steps uh, that indicate genocide. All of them have been ticked off uh, since October in one of the most clearly manifest cases of genocide that we've ever seen. Craig, I I have a, a, a couple of, I have many questions, more than, more than we have time for, but there's a couple I want to put to you. One, one is... I think you've addressed it in a way in the answer you, you gave me, but I want to put it to you more explicitly. It's clear that what's happening now in Gaza is genocide. Do you think that the same description applies to what is happening currently right now in the West Bank? I think it's the same genocide. So I think there's a specific set of military acts that Israel is carrying out to facilitate genocide in the Gaza portion of Palestine. But that is, it's not, it's not another genocide happening on the West Bank. It's an extension of genocide that's happening on the West Bank. So the attacks on villages, the wholesale ethnic cleansing of many villages just since October, but also earlier in the year that I was originally complaining about at, um, at the UN, uh, pogroms by settlers, armed, backed up, uh, sometimes physically uh, accompanied by the Israeli army in carrying out those things um, on the West Bank, dispossession, uh, settlement activity, all of these things are elements of the broader genocide, which also, by the way, includes persecution of Palestinians who live inside the Green Line into what is, uh, is now Israel, and obviously in Jerusalem, uh, occupied Jerusalem as well. 
Um, so it's all a part of the same uh, genocide that's being perpetrated um, uh, there. It's not, it's not, you know, there's often an attempt to try to separate these things because of geographic um, uh, separation, which is by design. Um, but but I, I see it as a part, of, I see it as evidence of the same genocide that's being perpetrated. The tactics are slightly different, or I mean, they're very different, um, but the end result is the same. Look at the specific acts that are taking place in the West Bank and the stated intent uh, of Israeli officials, and you can only uh, conclude that that is a part of the genocide that we see unfolding in Gaza. That's an extremely important clarification. I, I hadn't heard that addressed so clearly before, so, so thank you for that. Yeah. There's a couple of other things I want to ask you about. Part of the Genocide Convention, or, or let me say the Genocide Convention also defines incitement to genocide and complicity in genocide as crimes under the convention. And I want to talk about incitement and complicity because we've seen, I, I want to show you a story that we, we've been reporting on over the past few weeks. We've seen over the past uh, months this claim coming from Israel that uh, Hamas and Palestinian fighters used systemic, systematic mass rape as a weapon of war. This is a very inflammatory claim uh, for which Israel has presented no credible evidence, which may, I don't think that will surprise viewers of uh, the Electronic Intifada live stream or our readers because we report on it, but it may surprise many people who watch mainstream media. And there have been other claims that have been totally debunked, whether it is the 40 beheaded Jewish babies or the baby uh, uh, baked in an oven. That never happened either. There are also claims. I'm currently working on a story that, that we hope to publish in the next few days, pointing out how other claims where um, Israeli officers claim that, there were, that they found Israeli civilians tied together and shot were also false. What role do these sorts of claims play in a genocide? And is it complicity when, say, the President of the United States, the Secretary of State, and other international and foreign officials are repeating these? And I'll point out here, for example, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has also repeated Israeli claims as if they are fact. Without calling, I have never heard the Secretary General, call for independent investigations into these allegations, whether it's of mass rape or beheaded babies or, or whatever other story Israel is telling. Is this what is meant by incitement to genocide and complicity in genocide in the UN Convention? Yes, yeah, so let me take them separately. You know, first on the issue of incitement, there's been a lot of incitement. And there is no doubt in my mind that... Uh, Western media companies, especially in the United States, uh, and politicians, especially in the United States, have actually participated in incitement uh, in, in these cases. You know, I'm reminding people all the time that you can be held accountable also for incitement. It's a, special, it's a separate crime. And indeed, you know, we know in Nuremberg that people were held accountable for uh, incitement 
um, uh, in the, the, the genocide that took place against European Jews. We also know in Rwanda that the Rwanda Tribunal held several uh, individuals accountable for media figures for their incitement. But these lessons seem to have not been learned by media personalities in the West who are committing these same crimes of parroting non-critically, uh, uh, you know, allegations being made by the government of Israel and its proxies that are not credible on their face without any methodology of, of vetting and what it is that they are communicating. So there's a lot of that going on. Secondly, the issue of complicity. Complicity is a separate crime under the Genocide Convention. And as you know, the U.S. Uh, government officials are being uh, have an action against them uh, by the Center for Constitutional Rights for their complicity, as they as they should, because this is a very uh, a very specific uh, crime. If you um, so, you see the United States, for example, the U.S. has has other obligations, it has obligations of prevention which it has clearly failed on, is nothing to prevent the genocide that's taking place there. It also have obligations under the Geneva Conventions to ensure respect for the conventions vis-a-vis -vis other parties over which it has influence, in this case, Israel. But in this case, they've gone far beyond that mere breach and they've entered into legal co complicity because they have been provided, actively providing economic and military and intelligence and diplomatic support to Israel while it is engaged in its unlawful actions in, in Gaza. You have official state institutions, you know, the podiums of the National Security Council and the State Department and the White House and the Pentagon, dedicating themselves to disseminating Israeli propaganda for war, uh, dehumanization of Palestinians, justifications for war crimes and crimes against humanity. We all heard them parroting justifications for attacking hospitals in, in Gaza. That is active uh, uh, complicity, not to mention the fact that the U.S. has deployed its veto now multiple times to prevent Security Council calls for a ceasefire, after which many more thousands uh, were killed. Behind the scenes, you have the U.S. using its diplomatic resources to pressure U.N. actors to be silent on Israeli atrocities, including the human rights mechanisms uh, of the U.N. So here, you know, you have to have uh, legal accountability. And, and these fig leaves that the State Department has been trying to harvest uh, with these, you know, comments by Blinken and Biden, uh, like securing a trickle uh, of aid or saying that we have asked the Israelis to respect international law, these kinds of, you know, transparent uh, fig leaves. Uh, these are not going to relieve legal accountability for the United States because it has continued its acts of arming and financing and protecting the crimes as, as they're being committed. The rape so what, what does that mean? What is legal accountability? I mean, there have been calls, for example, uh, the journalist Sam Hosseini has yeah. uh, made the point of saying that no country has invoked the Genocide Convention, and he's saying that, uh, that, that they should do so, that any country can do so. What does it mean to invoke the Genocide Convention, and why has no one done it? I think what Sam Husseini is talking about is invoking the Genocide Convention in the World Court, in the International Court of Justice, the High Court of the UN, right? Because the Genocide Convention has a specific provision that mentions the International Court of Justice and says that any state can bring uh, a claim for genocide uh, or genocide prevention to get initial uh, orders from the court that would, you know, force uh, certain things to stop or certain things to, to happen. Now, that's a state-to-state -state claim. It's not individual criminal accountability, but it would be very important. States should bring it. There are conversations going on now 
uh, to see about getting uh, one or more states to bring a claim before the ICJ uh, for that purpose. There, I, I don't know why it has taken so long and what the hesitation is. There are theories out there, which I don't want to reinforce because I don't know if they're true. Um, but that is definitely something that uh, there's a lot of advocacy now to try to get a, one or more states to bring a claim before the International Court of Justice, the World Court. Now, separate from that is the problem of the International Criminal Court, where you can bring cases against individuals like Netanyahu, for example, uh, Joe Biden, for, for example, uh, for individual criminal accountability for war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide. Those are all covered by the Rome Statute of the International uh, Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. The problem there is that you've got a politically corrupted prosecutor uh, in Karim Khan who has demonstrated that he is unable or unwilling to implement uh, impartially the statute of the court. And this has been very clearly indicated by the rapidity with which he acted uh, on the encouragement of the West to bring action against Russia in the Ukraine, and the fact that he has dragged his feet and delayed and obstructed action on Palestine in spite of the case that there, in spite of the fact that there's a case before the court for years now that was already there when he was appointed as the prosecutor. He needs to step down or be replaced because he's dragging what little legitimacy the court has had uh, down with him. And they need to have really a, a, a complete turnaround uh, and pick up these uh, these claims because you have five states that are bringing action for genocide, uh, for the Israeli genocide uh, in Palestine in the International Criminal Court, but action will depend on whether or not this prosecutor um, is willing to take action. Now there's a third channel here because what we're talking about are crimes of universal jurisdiction, which means that court action for these crimes can be brought in any court anywhere. You know, there's nothing to stop a European court or, uh, or courts uh, uh, around the world from bringing cases against individuals that are perpetrators of genocide or complicity in genocide uh, or incitement to, to genocide, and they should. Uh, and I think we will see some of that activity uh, eventually, um, but this is, this is an obligation of states under international law to bring action to hold perpetrators of genocide accountable. By the way, there is this obligation of prevention as well. And, and many of the failings that I see in international institutions, including the UN, is that they've adopted a rhetorical device, and you should listen for it when you hear statements where someone says, what about, you know, there have been all these warnings about genocide unfolding in Palestine, and then you will have a UN official will say, well, um, only a court can determine if there is genocide, so we can't really say anything about that. It's utter nonsense. That is a rhetorical device that was invented in the halls of the UN specifically to avoid having to pronounce on genocide. And the problem with that is if you wait for a court to take a decision, you have already failed on the legal obligations in the convention of prevention. prevention. Yeah, and in, in fact, the security, I mean, just to go back to the special advisor, Ms. Deritu, her mandate from the Security Council the office that you were involved in creating is to monitor and advise the Security Council or the Secretary General through the Security Council, or rather to advise the Security Council through the Secretary General where there is a risk of genocide. In other words, it's her job to say, okay, nobody has determined 100% that there's a genocide here, 
but based on the available information, I think there's a risk of genocide. But, but they're not even doing that. That's absolutely right. And that, that, that is a very clear illustration of why that, that office, I think, needs to be dissolved. Uh, because if you have this kind of um, ineffective institution that gives people an excuse, that gives member states an excuse to say, we've set up this mechanism uh, and, and we're doing the best we can, and yet it is so political, politically controlled that it does not function, it's better not to have it. It's better to resort to the independent work of special rapporteurs like Francesca Albanese and the commissions of inquiry, those independent bodies that are not politically constrained by powerful states in the uh, in the West. But that's the, the, the whole idea is prevention. That's the idea of the convention. It's the idea of setting up that office. It's the idea um, uh, of, uh, yeah, of, uh, of prevention. And so that's a, uh, yeah, that's a horrific failure. You can line up that office and the ICC office and pretty much across the board, the failings of the Secretary General's office and see where we are um, in this genocide. So if so, where do Palestinians have any recourse at this point? What, where, who, who and what is going to step in to stop this? Well, they have the support of the majority of member states in the United Nations and have the support of the majority of the human beings in the world. The level of solidarity with the Palestinian people before and during this genocide is overwhelming compared to the opposition. What they don't have is institutions of the state in the West and international institutions on the political side. My, my critiques of the UN, I always point out, are of the political side of the house. It's the political leadership. It's the intergovernmental bodies. It's not, by the way, uh, the independent human rights mechanisms that I think are fantastic. It's not the many human rights and humanitarian workers on the ground, the 138 plus UNRWA workers who've been murdered by Israel together with their families. I mean, these people are doing heroic things and paying a very uh, a very high cost, but it is the political leadership of those institutions that have become compromised uh, intentionally by political pressure from uh, from the United States and from uh, the UK and from, from much of Europe in, uh, in particular. But there are, you know, I mentioned universal jurisdiction, right? those are possibilities in courts anywhere to pursue individual accountability. Um, I, I don't have a lot of faith in official institutions. I mean, the governments in the United States and Europe are so absolutely captured by political action committees, by the apacs of the world, by the arms manufacturers, by technology companies, all who have a stake in supporting genocide that I don't see anytime soon uh, a principled position coming out of the governments of the U.S. or the U.K. or the European Union that's been absolutely shameless um, dur during this genocide. But where I see hope is in the massive movements of civil society that have come together with unparalleled levels of solidarity and, you know, um, Jewish uh, principled Jewish voices, Muslim voices, Christian voices, agnostics, human rights defenders, peace activists, uh, ordinary people from all over who are coming together at great risk of persecution, of being smeared as terrorist supporters of anti-Semites, of losing their positions in universities, of being beaten and arrested by police, and nevertheless rising up in their thousands, their tens of thousands, their hundreds of thousands, ultimately their millions around the world to denounce what's happening and to demand accountability. That's where the hope is. And that movement is growing everywhere. 
in the global north and in the global south, uh, even in the US where there's so much repression against human rights defenders who dare to talk about Palestine, even in Germany where there's so much repression against minorities and against human rights defenders and people who are standing up to speak. And uh, there's something different. So there is a, there's something is breaking through now. And that's where I see the change coming. And it's going to come from civil disobedience, from massive demonstrations, from boycotts, uh, making companies pay an economic cost through divestment, uh, through sanctions, through uh, uh, the growing anti-apartheid movement. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to have been involved in the international human rights movement during apartheid in South Africa. And I remember that right up through the 1980s, apartheid in South Africa was supported by the United States government, by many European governments. And what changed it were movements in civil society, churches and synagogues and ordinary people who made it impossible for the shameful policies of those Western governments to continue, ultimately isolating the apartheid regime in South Africa uh, until, they, uh, until the South African people were freed from the yoke of apartheid. The same thing can happen in Palestine. And um, we, we are up against a brick wall of propaganda of uh, media companies that are all in for the genocide. Um, you know, little cracks are opening up there, but uh, there's a lot of work to be done yet to, uh, to, to continue that. But somehow, in spite of all of that, the majority of the people in the world are not only uh, horrified by and in opposition to genocide, apartheid, settler colonialism, persecution in Palestine, but are mobilizing around it and are, and are speaking up and are taking action. That's an enormous well of power that can be accessed to end what has been a horrific policy of genocide. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I just, in, when I'm talking to people who are not experts, I say just very clearly, you don't have to understand complicity or anything else. The United States and Israel and the United Kingdom and some European countries are committing genocide together because Israel couldn't do this without the money, the arms, the diplomatic and political cover, the intelligence support that is provided by these Western countries led by the United States. There has to be accountability, legal accountability. There also has to be political and economic accountability, and that can come from the people. Craig Mokhyber, uh, thank you so much um, for being with us today on the live stream and illuminating all of these um, really, uh, you know, essential questions that um, that need to be asked and 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 how to move forward, we are so grateful for the work that you do, and we'd love to have you back on as soon as possible. Thank you so much, Craig. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for all the great work that Electronic Intifada is doing. It's independent media that is is the game changer here, and you guys are doing a great job. So thank you for that. Thank, Thank you so much, Thank Craig. You. Thank you. Thanks. And uh, you are uh, watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada live stream. We're now joined by Hamam Farah. Hamam is a psychotherapist based in Toronto and a political organizer within Canada's Palestine Solidarity Movement and the Palestinian community. He was born in Gaza as part of Gaza's small Christian minority. He's found himself speaking on its behalf as it faces the threat of extinction at the hands of the Israeli military. Hamem, thank you so much for being with us on the live stream today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Hamem. And I, I just want to say I've been a longtime uh, admirer of your writing and your words. And I'm sorry that we are welcoming you to the live stream in these horrific circumstances. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. L likewise, Ali. 
long time reader since the second intifada i've been reading your work thank you um and and speaking of of which this morning you tweeted that quote israel bombed an entire entire residential block of the Rimal neighborhood of gaza city my aunt mona farah is in that area we can't reach her um Hamem, tell us about your family in gaza if there's been any updates with your aunt or other family members what 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 is this abject horror that your relatives in Gaza and in Canada are living through right now? It's unlike anything my family has experienced um, in past aggressions against Gaza. Um, we our our family was is for the first time they've had to leave uh, their homes in Gaza City along with obviously many others and seek shelter at the churches. They uh, left their homes just after October 7th, after the announcements were made and after the evacuation order was issued by the Israeli military to the people of Gaza to evacuate the north. And at first I wasn't sure that if that included them or not, but then it was evident that uh, everybody in the north uh, was uh, required to, to leave their homes um, and, and go south where Israel claimed it would be safer. As we know now, uh, the South is not safe. Nowhere in Gaza is, is safe. Uh, so the situation is very precarious and we, we don't know, uh, you don't know who's, who's going to make it alive, make it out alive at the end of, uh, at the end of this, uh, this horror. Uh, and so my family, uh, shortly after that announcement, uh, left for the churches there. And because we're part of Gaza's Christian minority, um, you know the, the churches are a, a big a big part of uh, of daily life um, and community living uh, in Gaza. Uh, the YMCA is uh, one of the main uh, recreation uh, centers in in not only for Christians though also for for Muslims for everybody in Gaza. And I actually just learned that the YMCA was bombed. Um, I think yesterday or the, or, or the day before or sometime uh, this month. Uh, I, I didn't know that before. I, I used to spend some time there as a kid uh, with my uncle and uh, and my family there. I had my baptism uh, ceremony uh, at the YMCA. We usually have our our kind of receptions for events um, at the at the YMCA historically. And during the first intifada, it was a it was a big part of uh, people's gathering and and, and meeting space uh, for for communities during the first intifada. Um, as I remember it, as a, I was only uh, seven years old at the time. Um, but after my family left in October, they went down to the St. Porphyrius Orthodox Church. Uh, my family's Orthodox, although there are some Catholic families in, in Palestine as well, um, and some Protestant also. There is a Baptist church even in, in Gaza that uh, I attended once. So they went there and uh, there were hundreds of others with them in, at the Orthodox Church. We knew that there were other families in the Catholic Church as well that took shelter there. And they had uh, little food, uh, little supplies. Um, you know, they, they suffered the shortages like, uh, like everyone else. Uh, and uh, the churches do their best to to find food and to and to bring it to them and to seek aid whenever aid is you know allowed in. Um, and then on October 
19, we, we used to check on them as much as we can. You know, we try to check on them daily. My mother is usually the, 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 the person who's, who's calling every day. But a lot of a lot of times we don't we can't reach them because of the uh, telecommunications uh, blackouts. Uh, Israel bombed the telecoms centers, so uh, we can't reach our family a lot of the time. Especially now, now we have we've been unable to reach uh, to reach some of my most of my my relatives uh, for some of them for a week, if not longer. Uh, so we're really worried about them, including um, my my aunt uh, Mona uh, Farah. She's in. Uh, she she decided to stay home uh, in Al Rimal neighborhood. Uh, she didn't uh, go to the church with the others. And I think one of the reasons is that she uses a walker. She she's uh, has a disability now at, at old age, and she uses a walker. And so she said that the church at Saint Porphyrius, at least, was um, not very accessible to her needs and uh, would rather stay uh, to stay in her house. Uh, later on, she was moved to a, um, a friend's house who could look after her um, in the Tufah neighborhood in Gaza. And that's, I, it's in Al-Rimal, but uh, I'm not sure where exactly uh, in Al-Rimal, just a little bit um, in the north in Al-Rimal, I believe. Um, so when you know, the detonation happened or the bombing, what, what, whatever that was, that horrifying scene that, that, that I had tweeted and I, I saw others were tweeting. Um, I don't know if she's, uh, if she's if, you know, if she was uh, near that area. So, um, and then at St. Porphyrius, uh, the conditions were not easy, of course. You know, the people um, had a hard time uh, coping and they had to, they were sheltered there for a while and then Israel as we know bombed the the Saint Porphyrius church on October 19 and that bombing actually impacted my family in particular uh, it, it they were sleeping in the in the room where the ceiling collapsed and uh, 18 people were killed in that bombing uh, my cousin being one of them, my step cousin. So he, uh, his name was uh, Sulaiman Tarazi, and the Tarazi family is very close to 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 our family. Uh, and uh, my aunt, uh, my other aunt Nagam, uh, she's my my mother's younger sister. <clears throat> she's the one I'm closest with, actually, the relative I'm closest with. And so. <clears throat> Uh, she's the one I sort of try to keep updated with the most and uh, the one I'm, I, I really, really worry about uh, every day we think about her because I had a close relationship with her growing up. And she uh, is married to Jamil Tarazi, who is a, a, a doctor, a surgeon who worked at Al-Shifa for a long time. And they were together in the church and their uh, Jamil's son, uh, uh, Sulaiman, who he was 35 years old. Uh, he uh, is married uh, to Lily, and they have two uh, two young boys, uh, I believe five and six years old. And uh, they were they were all sleeping in on the second floor of of the church when it was bombed. And Sulaiman was pulled from under under the rubble. Now, when he was pulled from under the rubble, he was still alive, and he was holding on to one of his sons 
And when they uh, pulled his son out of his hands first and then came to uh, pull him out, the floor collapsed from beneath him, from under him. And uh, he fell and the rocks fell uh, on top of him into the first floor. And that's how he uh, was ultimately uh, lost his life. He was killed. Um, I struggle to imagine what um, his son may have been going through. I don't know if his son was conscious at the time and whether he saw his father um, perish like that in that in that way. And I struggle to to think about um, how his son is going to grow up and and feel and possibly feel a sense of guilt as an adult uh, because of watching his father fall like that and how he was first pulled uh, from his father's arms. That could very well happen to him. I, you know, I, hopefully um, he can, hopefully he'll be okay growing up. But I'm, I'm also thinking here as a therapist that, about, uh, you know, early childhood trauma and what that, yeah. what we know that can do uh, into adulthood. Um, you know, as we know, the vast majority of children are, are, uh, are traumatized uh, in Gaza. Uh, adults were traumatized as children. Uh, we know that uh, many of uh, Hamas and other uh, resistance organizations and their, um, you know, their childhoods were childhoods of trauma. We know a lot of them are orphans. A lot of them lost their, their families in previous Israeli aggressions and, and as adults decided to, to join these organizations. Um, whether we agree or, or disagree with uh, whatever tactics um, organizations employ. Yes. Um, I, you know, you're in the agonizing situation of so many people of not knowing what is happening to friends and loved ones, uh, dear people. And, uh, you know, and sometimes we know their fate and it's awful. And sometimes we don't know their fate and it's just as awful not knowing what they're going through. Um, I want to show you this little video here that you may have seen online. It's been circulating. And this is uh, a person called uh, Fleur Hassan Nahum, who is a British settler in Palestine. Uh, and she purports to be, she claims to be the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. Of course, we don't recognize the legitimacy of that uh, authority, but that's who she, what she claims to be. Let's take a look at, uh, at, uh, at that little video. If a ceasefire means the return of the hostages and the dismantlement of a genocidal regime that has stated that they're going to attack us again, then everybody would be in favor of a ceasefire. But if a ceasefire means that we're just going to keep them quiet for a bit until they attack again, then it's Israel's obligation to defend its citizens and destroy that threat, don't you think? Why is it necessary, it would, is reported, to start shooting, having snipers outside a church? I don't. I saw the reports this morning. Um, the church, there are no churches in Gaza, so I'm not quite sure where the report well, is, is, is there's, talking a, about. there's a Catholic church in there, isn't there? That is. Yeah, unfortunately, there are no Christians because they were dry, dro drove and driven out by. Well, there are, respectfully, there are Christians because I spoke to an MP yesterday who has family members in the church who are Christians. Well, I don't uh, know what happened. I don't know who was attacked. I didn't see the report. 
All right, so she, that's a British settler, uh, Fleur Hassan Nahum, who uh, claims to be the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. And uh, she saw the reports, but then she didn't see the reports. But the important information she's <laughs> conveying, uh, Hamam, is that there are no Christians and no uh, churches in Gaza. Uh, can you confirm that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here, here, here I am. I'm a Christian from from Gaza. I was born in Gaza. I've been in been in Gaza. Uh, my family's still in Gaza. There are, uh, you know, we Palestinian Christians uh, historically make up 15 to 20 percent of the Palestinian population. That is a big. That is a large minority. Um, but we, you know, we've lost our lands and we've been expelled by the Israeli army. Uh, we've, uh, you know, had our lands confiscated. We've been oppressed by the Israeli regime. Uh, we face the same, the same circumstances, the same oppressions, uh, the same uh, incursions and 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 uh, bombing of our people, as of our community, just as uh, as as Muslims do. There is no distinction between the way that Israel oppresses uh, Palestinian Muslims and the way it oppresses Palestinian Christians. We're all one people and. We're all united in this uh, in, in this struggle for for justice in Palestine, um, and uh, for the struggle for you know the right to return and the end of the occupation, the end of apartheid. Uh, we we all we see ourselves as part of the Palestine uh, the Palestinian national movement um, historically and until today. Uh, m- many of many Palestinian Christians have been prominent voices in in the Palestine national movement. Uh, historically, we've had. Uh, leaders like uh, George Habash. We had uh, Naif Hawatme, who, is, who himself is Jordanian, but he was uh, very involved in, in, in the Palestinian resistance and the PLO. Uh, we have uh, uh, Shirin Abu Akle, who was a, a journalist, uh, longtime journalist, as a lot of people have heard about her, and she was assassinated by uh, an Israeli sniper, or, um, yeah, it was a sniper that... Uh, She was shot uh, in the head in uh, 2022, in May of 2022, and there was an investigation. Israel refused to, still refuses today to investigate, Um, but uh, there were independent investigations that found that she was uh, killed by an Israeli soldier. And initially, Israel denied having uh, shot her um, and then gradually changed that story. Um, and admitted that it was an Israel, the Israeli army and Israeli soldier that that, that killed her, um, and this is you know one of the reasons why it's it's hard to believe any of the Israeli propaganda statements um, coming out today about what's happening in Gaza, precisely because they, there's Israel is like the boy who cried wolf. You know, so many uh, statements and denials were made that were uh, eventually uh, disproven, refuted, or Israel itself uh, changed its, uh, its line on it and finally admitted under extreme you know, international pressure uh, to, uh, to admit to the crimes, to its crimes. Hamad, the, the, that particular interview, which was from a British uh, radio station, was referring to an incident that that you have written about uh, the horrifying uh, murder of um, Nahida Antoun and her daughter Samar Antoun by an Israeli sniper at the Catholic Church in 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 Gaza. And 
uh, that happened, I believe, on the 16th of, of December, so just uh, a week ago, barely. Let's take a look at uh, uh, that. That's what, what you wrote about it, and, and you posted a picture of Nahida and Samar, who, um, as you wrote, were trying to go from the church over to the sisters' convent to use the only available bathroom facility, and they were brutally murdered by. Uh, by an Israeli sniper, and uh, uh, one tried to rescue the other and, and, and was then also shot and murdered. And this was um, condemned the very next day by Pope Francis, giving his weekly address from the Vatican in Rome. We can take a look at that. I don't know if we have the if the sound is uh, available. In uh, any case, I believe the Pope is speaking in Italian. Um, we can we can come back to that, but he did directly condemn their killing by name, uh, and and you you noted in in your tweet that uh, Nehida and Samarantun were family friends. And so I was so sorry for your loss and for the loss of, uh, of their family. Maybe we have the sound now. We'll just... Non dimentichiamo i nostri fratelli e sorelle che soffrano per la guerra in Ucraina, in Palestina, in Israele e nelle altre zone del conflitto. Avvicinarsi del Natale rafforza l'impegno per aprire strade di pace. Continuo a ricevere da casa notizie molto gravi e dolorose. Civili inermi sono oggetto di bombardamenti e spari. E questo è avvenuto persino all'interno del complesso parrocchiale della Santa Famiglia, dove non ci sono terroristi ma famiglie, bambini, persone malate con disabilità, suori. Una mamma e sua figlia, la signora Narda Khalil Anton e la figlia Samar Kwamar Anton, sono state uccise e altre persone ferite dai tiratori scelti mentre andavano in bagno. È stata danneggiata la casa delle suore di madre Teresa colpito il loro generatore. Qualcuno dice è il terrorismo, è la guerra. Sì, è la guerra, è il terrorismo. Per questo la scrittura afferma che Dio fa cessare le guerre, rompe gli archi e spesa le lance. Preghiamo il Signore per la pace. Ah... Uh. You uh, wrote also, Hamam, that this is a targeted death campaign during the Christmas season on the world's oldest Christian community. And you've also said that the Christian community in Gaza is on the verge of extinction. And that, those are very painful words to hear, and I'm sure very painful words for you to write and to speak. But I'd like you to talk. You were born in Gaza. You have memories of the Christian community there. 
talk to us about the Christian community in Gaza, about the life of that community as part of the community in Gaza, and, and what it might mean if they too fall victim to this genocide and that extinction you fear takes place. Yes, those are heavy words. The Christian community in Gaza is, an, is, an, is a very old one. I mean, it's a, some say it dates back to the time of Christ. Um, and uh, others were uh, date back to the Ghassanid tribe uh, uh, more than a thousand years ago. But uh, now in, 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 in Palestine, in recent history, uh, We've, you know, I, I, I remember the, the Christmas being a, a very special celebration um, in, in Gaza. And I know that last year, uh, the lighting of the Christmas tree was, uh, was such a, a wonderful occasion. And I've seen pictures um, on social media circulating about what it was like last year. And I saw some relatives in those pictures uh, and family friends who were celebrating uh, just last year at this time the lighting of the Christmas tree and th those pic pictures looked so so festive so joyous everybody there's a smile on everybody's face and uh, just the comparison between then and and now here we have the Christian community being um, being expelled and, and, and murdered and, and potentially extinct, as you said, and as I tweeted, um, uh, just like uh, uh, others are being, everyone else is, you know, being murdered and being subjected to this, to this genocide. I think for Israel, uh, you know, they, I, I think from an, you know, having an analysis of this, I think Israel benefits from denying that there is an, a Christian population in Gaza and in Palestine um, uh, more generally. Uh, historically, Israel preferred to not uh, utter the word Palestinian Christian or to, to, to mention that there are Palestinian Christians. They don't want the uh, you know, people in North America and Europe to know about the existence of Palestinian Christians because there's this the fear that... Uh, that uh, the people's uh, Christian people in, in, in North America and Europe will, st will support the Palestinian cause uh, more if they if they found out that there are Palestinian Christians like Christians like them who uh, who are being subjected to to oppression and Israeli injustice. Um, and the reason why I've, I've been also coming out so strongly against these attacks on, on my family is because we also lost uh, uh, my great aunt uh, in November on November 12. Her name was Ilham Farah. She's uh, my mother's aunt, and she uh, couldn't uh, stand being uh, sheltered at the church anymore, so she found a ride to take her to take her back to her house. And she's the she's the type that doesn't listen to anyone. You know, other relatives try to tell her that she should uh, stay in the church for her safety, for her own safety. But uh, 
but she was quite an independent, um, independent woman. Uh, she used to travel all the time without even telling anyone. Uh, and uh, whenever it was possible to travel outside of Gaza, and she would get a permit and, 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 and go out there uh, on, on an adventure. So she was, she was quite known for that and quite popular in Gaza. That, that, yes, that's her picture. Thank you. Um, quite, she was quite a character. And when, uh, when she was killed, there, were, there was an outpouring of support, and she turned out to be more popular than my immediate family and I uh, even knew here in, here in Canada. Um, but she, she, when she reached uh, her, in front of her house, she got out of... Uh, she, before that, the car that, the, the, that drove her back, the driver refused to, to keep driving beyond a certain point. He thought, this is, it's too dangerous, I'm not going past this point. You're on your own from here, and she got out of uh, out of the car. And I imagine her, you know, saying, uh, "To hell with you! I'm I'm gonna just keep going on foot if I have to." Uh, she's that kind of woman. So she started walking towards her house, and uh, there, an Israeli sniper shot her in the leg, below the knee. So she fell, and she called my relatives back at the church with her phone, her cell phone, and they. Uh, you know, they told her they're going to do whatever they can to send uh, the Red Cross over and pick her up. But they had to get permission from the Israeli army uh, for the Red Cross to be able to go and get to her. So she was lying on the road in the middle um, of the neighborhood and others could see her there. Uh, my, my relatives called the neighbors in the vicinity. The neighbors uh, said that they can see her, but no one can go out and, and, and get her because of, of all the snipers in the area. Um, and there were tanks in the area as well. My great aunt herself was telling my relatives um, over the phone that there, there are tanks, I see tanks and I see snipers all over the place um, taking position. And uh, I know she made a number of calls to, to relatives. She did get a chance to talk to my mother as well. Uh, she talked to, I believe, the priest and told him to, to uh, pray for her the prayer of death because it seems that she knew uh, that this was the end for her. And so she, um, the Red Cross was denied to be able to go and get her, or there, or there was no response from the Israeli army. I know the Red Cross did try to get permission, uh, but I believe there was no response. And the next uh, morning, I get a call from my mother and she said, uh, she, that Auntie Ilham passed away and the Red Cross was prevented. The ambulances were prevented from picking, picking her up and, and, and giving her help. I mean, she was shot beneath, uh, beneath, uh, beneath the knee, um, um, which, uh, which means that there was a possibility that she could have been saved, uh, potentially. Uh, but she was uh, probably, you know, bled out uh, to death. Uh, the next morning the neighbors were able to leave, uh, leave their homes and uh, start to make the trek down south. And as they were leaving, they went to check on, on her and found her that she was dead. And that's how we found out, uh, it was the neighbors who told us. A week later, this is a little uh, disturbing, but, uh, and I just found this out yesterday. I haven't uh, written about this anywhere uh, as of yet. Uh, but a week later, the, the two of the priests at the church uh, or, or two of the, the priest's assistants went to uh, pick up her body uh, for 
burial. And this was, um, I believe, when uh, the ceasefire, not ceasefire, I wish, the, the humanitarian pause or whatever they call them uh, was coming into effect. Uh, they went to pick up her body um, and they uh, found that she, they only found parts of her body because it was run over by a tank. Uh, we don't know if that tank ran her over while she was alive or after she uh, died. Uh, we don't know, and I don't think we'll ever know. But uh, I just heard about this yesterday and was very disturbed. I, I in fact, couldn't even sleep last night uh, from the anxiety and, 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 uh, and how disturbing... Uh, this news was among other things and obviously having to, to, to deal with under so much pressure with all of this going on. Hamam, it's, I'm so sorry. I mean, words, uh, we don't have the words to express all the pain we're feeling and that, that, that our families and friends and loved ones in Gaza have been going through when we, they tell us the word that is most that I, I hear probably most often from our friends and colleagues in Gaza about the situation is indescribable. And that, I think, speaks to the scale of horror beyond anything that human beings can were made to cope with, uh, in, including the, the having to uh, think about the horrible torture and suffering that that Israel put uh, your aunt and so many other people through I, I want to ask you you know in, in a way it's it's a question that I think I and others hesitate to ask because I think our focus rightly is and should be on people in Gaza people in Palestine and in stopping the genocide and using all our effort to raise our voices to demand a ceasefire to demand an end of the complicity and yet at the same time we are all going through this as sorry Ali there's a bit of breakup in the in the audio yeah I, I think we are all going through this as individuals and as communities. And you are a therapist, and I'm not asking you for, a, for your professional opinion, but I, how can we, and I've all, we also hear from many people who watch this live stream that they feel a comfort in, in being part of this as a community. Is how do we cope with this? And what, what are you seeing in terms of people in your community and in Canada and the experience of, of so many Palestinians in the diaspora and particularly of Palestinians with family in, in Gaza is also an enormous level of trauma that, again, I think many of us don't want to focus on that because we don't want to take away the... Uh, focus from what's happening in Gaza, but at the same time, it's real, and we all need to be strong and present in order to be able to advocate and to keep speaking. What what can you tell us uh, about your own thoughts on that? 
Sorry, Ali, there was an audio break up there. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if the it's connection is... Mm. Yeah. Well, Hamem, uh, I can try and paraphrase a little bit about what Ali said. Can you hear me okay? Oh, maybe maybe Hamem can't hear. Uh, but we were talking about how do we process the secondary trauma, especially for Palestinians in the diaspora and in exile, um, and and you know for that matter for all of us who are watching this and reporting on it and uh you know just this constant stream of um just terrorizing and unfathomable news how do we begin to process this kind of trauma yeah um to be honest i, I do get asked questions like this quite often but there is no kind of, you know, there is no uh, magic solution here that, that the therapist can, can provide. Um, what I do is I help individuals understand themselves better so they can uh, understand how to navigate life in, in, in a better way. But when it comes to these kind of collective um, experiences of war and war trauma, I think, uh, you know, stay, stay connected, as much as possible to, to with others, um, especially like you know this space here and at, at, at the live stream and the electronic intifada, the the, the show. Um, as you said, Ali, in your in your email, it's been uh, you've heard that a lot of the audience members have found it, found such a solace to be able to watch uh, people who uh, who, who uh, share in their in their uh, convictions and in their views and you know in the suffering as well. To be able to come here and and and, and listen to the show, um, you know, I'm I'm sure a lot of people uh, right now what they need is 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 to be with others, uh, to be with close with those close to them. I think um, when it comes to dealing with this trauma, it's not it's not going to be easy even after after this this horror is over, uh, but. Uh, you know, do it together is what I say. You know, feel feel these feelings together and and try to be with like-minded people in the community. Don't isolate as much as possible. And I'm aware that for myself, I have I do have a habit of isolating, of self-isolating. So uh, it's easier said than done for some of us. Um, but you know, there is a community out there. There are people out there who, uh, as we know, we've seen the protests. For example, we've seen the overwhelming support from uh from ordinary people on the ground um who are, who are coming out and putting pressure on their on their respective governments to issue a ceasefire uh declaration or, or decision um we've we see that the majority of ordinary people do support the palestinian cause and so there are the communities out there for us to be a part of and and to engage with um, and to stay connected to other than family members and other than friends. Um, and, you know, for me in particular, it has been very hard uh, personally. And I felt the sense of alienation, not just isolation, but the sense of that it's very easy to slip into at this time because 
you're experiencing the threat of extinction, of extermination, of non-existence, right? Your very existence is on the line now. Uh, it didn't feel like so much like that in the past, in, in previous aggressions and throughout the occupation as much as it does today. Since October 7th until now, the feeling has been, uh, there has been a shift in, in, in the emotional side of it. I've, I've personally felt like they are, like I don't exist anymore um, or I am under the threat of not existing anymore. And uh, not just by Israel, by, but by people, uh, pe you know, people who support Israel uh, here in, in Canada and in the U.S. Uh, uh, and the Israel lobby and, um, and, and the, all the silencing that happens and people who've lost their jobs and, and uh, uh, people who are, uh, uh, you know, under threat of, of losing their jobs and livelihoods. Uh, and possibly arrested for, for their views. So there is a lot of fear now, and we've seen, obviously, some of the atrocities that have happened um, against Palestinian-American uh, uh, citizens, uh, like those three young boys, uh, young men, who were, who were uh, shot in the U.S., um, and that six-year-old uh, kid who was, who was murdered, uh, uh, and, and his mother severely injured by that attack um, in America. So, uh, you know, there is a lot of a lot of fear in the community. We've seen rampant uh, a rise in Islamophobia, just as we've seen it seen a rise in anti-Semitism. We've all seen a rise in Islamophobia. We've seen a rise in anti-Palestinian uh, racism. Um, and so, th there is uh, a lot of concern and a lot of fear around that. And and the, and with that, with that fear comes the feeling of of uh, existential threat, the feeling of, you know, the, the rest of the world wants my, um, me to disappear. Um, I'm not wanted, right? There's a feeling of being unwanted. And uh, that's what I've felt very much so acutely uh, throughout this time. And so it's very important to be able to look out there and remind ourselves and reach out to, to people uh, that we care about and people who care about us that because the fact is the reality is that most of, most people out there do support support us and support the Palestinian resistance and the Palestinian cause Hamam Farah uh, thank you so much uh, I, I just want to underscore um, how sorry we all are um, about your family members and your and your family, friends, and, and the entire community in Gaza. Um, and we're all with you. And um, we really appreciate you, especially talking about um, not giving into isolation. I think that's a really important point that, that I think strikes a, a deep chord with, with all of us. And I'm sure most of our, our viewers as well. Um, it's hard, but it's necessary. And um just thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us on the live stream today. Thank you. Thank you, Hamam. And we are sending you, you and your family and friends in Gaza a lot of love. Indeed. Thank you so much, Hamam. Um, and please keep us posted. Thank you so much. Family. Yeah. Thanks. Come back on anytime. 
I am Nora Barrows-Friedman. This is the Electronic Intifada live stream. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, and uh, maybe just for a breather, Ali, uh, can you uh, give us a, an update on, on some important EI news? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's sort of hard to switch gears. It is, uh, you know, I will <laughs> I will be honest. It's like I I come into the live stream saying I'm ready, and the emotions do well up. And um, I don't always like to admit that, but uh, I read a beautiful piece this morning that's on the Electronic Intifada website. And uh, Tamara, if you could pull up the website, I'd just like to show it to people. It's a piece that um, is by our dear friend uh, Jennifer Bing, uh, who is uh, who does wonderful work um, in solidarity with Palestinians as part of the American Friends Service Committee. And and uh, Jennifer, if you're watching, uh, we're sending our love out to you. Um, and in particular, Jennifer has been working with Palestinians in Gaza for many years to highlight the situation there. And Jennifer wrote this beautiful piece, Lessons from Rifat. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a, a really wonderful piece on the lessons that uh, Jennifer learned working with Rifat. And it's one I really strongly recommend to everyone. But one, one lesson that Jennifer says she learned is, is, you know, to, is not to hide your emotions. And sometimes we, we have to admit that we have them. And I was grateful for that. And it reminded me that uh, Rifat was somebody who was about uh, self-expression, individual expression, but in the context of solidarity and community and a liberation struggle. And I, I just thought there was so much there that uh, was uh, meaningful to me. And uh, that's just one of the many articles we are publishing at the Electronic Intifada. Every single day we have new articles. If we take a look at the front page today, uh, we have, of course, as Nora mentioned uh, at the beginning, the regular updates on the political and diplomatic and humanitarian situation by our colleague uh, uh, Maureen Murphy. Uh, and that's the latest piece that was uh, uh, just published uh, today. And of course, we have our writers in Gaza, many of them who are former students and mentees of our dear friend Rifat, who are uh, who are writing every day. And one one piece that I think we just published this morning, Tamara, if we can look at the piece by Khaloud that's right at the top there. Uh, this was just published today. One story, that one thing that I've been curious about for a time, you know, we, we get a little bit of information about this, but basic things in Gaza like money right now, is money useful? When there's when when there's no food on the shelves, uh, and if you have money, can you get it uh, out of the bank when everything is being destroyed, everything is being shut down, and uh, people often ask us, "Can you send money to Gaza?" So Khalud deals with some of those really practical questions of life 
for Palestinians in Gaza right now in this piece. And that's just one example of the reportage we're very proud to publish. And so I just, again, wanted to highlight that, especially for new viewers here, that the live stream is only a part of what we do. Uh, it is the publication, the Electronic Intifada, the website that you can find, wh where you can find all this reportage. And we want you to support us by sharing these, reading these articles, sharing them, sending them to families and friends. If you click on that Get Updates uh, button in the top left corner of the screen, sign up for our mailing list. You'll get one email a day with all our headlines and links to our articles. That makes it very easy. That's a very popular way for people to get all our news. And it's a way for us to tell you about the live streams. And if you can, you can make a donation to support our work. We are an independent publication and everything we do is supported by our readers. That's why we can bring you this uncensored. We don't have to worry about, you know, uh, what are the corporate bosses going to say if we talk about Palestine. We don't get WhatsApp messages from uh, uh, top UN officials like uh, uh, Craig McIver did telling us to be quiet. Now, I want to say that everything we do is free for everyone in the world to read and share, and that's the way it's always going to be. Uh, so, but if you can make a donation to support our work, please do. The reason we're talking about this now is because it is in the month of December that we raise most of the resources for the whole year. And especially now when we are doing so much more work, your support is needed. I want to say this, though. If making a donation to us is going to cause you any kind of hardship, or cause you to go with some, go without something you need, don't. You know, we only want you to support us if you can. Now, if you can afford to support us, uh, please do. And maybe if you can afford it, make give a little extra on behalf of those who can't, because that's how we do this. This is a common effort. We're all in this together. And, and, Again, it's just as important that you're reading, sharing, telling people about what we do, and going out to rallies, to protests, to vigils, calling representatives. That's all part of the work we do together. So again, thank you for all the support. Thank you for all the messages. We are overwhelmed by the love we receive from all of you, and it, it really means a lot to us. This is hard. It's hard for all of us, but it is so much easier and better that we are in it together. So thank you. Thank you, Ali. Indeed. Um, and uh, now we're going to uh, go to John to talk about some uh, developments in terms of Palestinian resistance, and um, we will be showing some jelly beans. So yes, our, lots of questions about jelly beans. Yes, jelly beans are coming. Um, <laughs> don't worry. Uh, yeah, John, what, uh, what can you tell us about the last uh, few days? Well, let's start with Yemen, because we did Yemen uh, yeah. last episode, and uh, the U.S. Uh, stood up a naval uh, coalition, a coalition of the willing to attempt to um, to make Yemen back down. And uh, the leader of Ansar Allah yesterday, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, gave a speech 
where he directly confronted those threats um, and talked to um, the Americans who were listening, called for a demonstration. Um, today that we've seen in the streets is now more than, looks like, again, more than a million people. Um, but in the speech, um, Al-Houthi targeted um, American uh, failures in the region before. He said that uh, if there was an invasion or an attack on Yemen, that the same thing would happen uh, to the Americans as happened in Afghanistan um, or Vietnam, he cited. And again, this is, this is true. These countries have threatened um, Ansar Allah before. They've been fighting a nine-year war, a Saudi-US war against Yemen. Um, and they haven't deterred Yemen uh, through that nine-year war. And so um, Abdel Malik al-Houthi was just pointing out that that's not going to start today. And in fact, that this is um, something that the, that, the, that the Yemenis have wanted um, for many years, is this fight against the U.S. Um, and Israel. And so they're not afraid at all. And so... Um, that's been noticed, of course, in Palestine. Um, Abu Obeda, the spokesperson for the Qassam Brigades, ha has been giving a shout out to Yemen uh, in his uh, regular speeches. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to give that update. Also, just we saw this last uh, few days, uh, if people are wondering how the crew of the um, Israeli-owned uh, Galaxy Leader is doing, we saw them this week. Um, cliff jumping off of the side of the ship, uh, probably after chewing cat, which they've been sharing with them. And uh, people have come and visited them on the boat and brought gifts to them. Um, so again, the juxtaposition of how um, they're being treated versus how um, the Israelis and Americans treat uh, treat their, their their captives. So that was just a quick uh, quick update on the Yemen front. And uh, one thing that was notable about that uh, Abdel Malik Al Houthi speech um, from two days ago was that um, after it was shown on Yemeni TV, the Qassam Brigades gave to um, the Houthi movement to Ansar Allah. Uh, exclusive first view of their video from Khan Yunus. So everybody in Yemen that was watching uh, Abdel Malik Al Houthi's speech, as soon as it ended, uh, it went to this video from Khan Yunus. So maybe we can we can call that up tomorrow and and start with the videos from Khan Yunus. Um, so as soon as his speech ended, uh, he, this is the video that was shown, uh, a close-up shot of a tank getting hit. And I believe that we're seeing right there the piece flying off there. Uh, I believe that's the trophy active protection system that is uh, intended to protect the vehicle, but clearly wasn't able to activate in time. And we know that um, when the Yassines um, are within 60 meters fired within 60 meters that the, the active protection system doesn't have the ability to go off. Um, and so we're seeing this, of course, resistance. Um, this is 29,000 uh, Israeli airstrikes, 100,000 tank shells fired into Gaza. Um, you know, the Israelis talk about having 100,000 troops on the ground. Um, and we're still getting and we're still getting videos like this. Um, almost daily, pretty much daily. 
Um, and so we also see the leadership in a position to make these videos, respond to things that are happening, share the videos with Yemeni news television channels, um, share them with Al Jazeera, who shows them a lot. Um, so this idea that the command and control has been somehow um, collapsed is clearly um, just propaganda um, from the Israelis, because we can see from these videos um, that there's total command and control still in these areas. Um, and this is from Khan Yunus. So. Right, that's the south. In the I mean, south. In the north, um, the Israeli military announced that it had started withdrawing some of its forces, some of its like uh, occupation forces, including the, the Golani Brigade, which is one of the most elite units of the Israeli army. Um, can you talk about the significance of that and what it means? Yeah, well, we're not sure what it means. I, I, I don't think yet. I mean, they do rotate out, but the Golani Brigade was the one, is the brigade that's uh, suffered the most um, from the Palestinian resistance. They were the group that was uh, collapsed on October 7th. Um, they were the frontline forces uh, protecting the Iron Wall, uh, as Israel calls it. Um, and so the, the Golani troops were there that morning, lost 40 soldiers um, that morning within the first um, like 90 minutes or less of the uh, October 7th attack. And since then, they've lost at least 40 soldiers that have been named, including um, eight commanders, um, two really senior offices, lieutenant colonel and colonels uh, that were killed. Um, we know that they were ambushed in Shujaia with a triple ambush. Their commander's team was ambushed um, in a house using a tunnel. Um, and then they sent commanders in to rescue them and they got ambushed. And then they sent in a third unit and they got ambushed. Um, and so Golani has been fighting um, uh, in Shujaia and they have been targeting uh, Shujaia because of a uh, of a debt that they say they have from 2014's war. Um, and there was a monument in the square in Shijaya that had a the armored personnel carrier that was destroyed with a fist and the Golani Brigade tore that struck, uh, tore that monument down. And we saw them yesterday um, do this thing uh, where they wire houses, not bombing them, but wiring them with explosives and then detonating them. We saw them do that yesterday, the Golani Brigade blowing up 50 houses in Shujaia and saying as he was counting down 10, 9, 8, saying this is for Nahal Az, um, which is Nahal Az is the uh, settlement that's across from Shujaia that in 2014 was attacked on camera and overrun and then was spectacularly overrun on October 7th. Um, so you see from the Israelis this kind of um, just pure vengeance and targeting of civilians as vengeance for these ghosts um, of these units. And so the, the Golani Brigade has been hit harder than any other unit. Um, and so for the Israelis to claim, as they do, operational control, uh, as they say, over Shujaia and, and Jabalia, which they said yesterday, um, which does have a bit of a feeling of the sort of George Bush mission accomplished or the Dan Halutz, uh, we won the war in 2006 when he said that two days into the war. 
Um, I mean, even the the Ansar Allah has an example from the Saudis saying that they won the war within a week of the of the war uh, against uh, the Houthi movement, Ansar Allah. So these kind of uh, projections of victory um, that allow then the troops to withdraw, I think that the Israelis were, I believe it looks pretty clear that they were expecting another round of uh, a pause in the fighting, which would allow their troops to sort of fix their gear. As we watched on the last show, um, we saw a whole caravan of their destroyed armored vehicles being dragged back home um, that need to be fixed. And I think the Israelis, uh, the tempo of this fighting um, is, is uh, something that it looks like the Israelis are trying to wind um, parts of this battle down in the north and pulling the Golani brigade uh, for the, they pulled one battalion of the brigade, the other battalions down fighting in Khan Yunus now, um, I think it makes sense. They needed to, they need to replace and replenish these forces. Um, and, and they haven't done that because of the pace of this con uh, conflict. And they haven't done it um, in large part because the Palestinian resistance hasn't given in to the demands of the Israelis to hand over prisoners without uh, ceasefire. Um, the resistance has been principled about who, um, about how the prisoner exchange is going to work. And they've said since day one that there can be a prisoner exchange immediately. Um, but the, um, the Israelis have to stop the aggression that, that we talked about, you know, like a hundred thousand buildings have been destroyed in Gaza. Um, you know, 30,000 airstrikes killing 20,000 people, but militarily they have nothing to show for their, uh, for their war plan, which was to destroy Hamas, which clearly hasn't happened. And the second one was to return their hostages, their captives. Um, which they haven't done either. So they're claiming operational control over the two most important uh, fighting centers in the north. Um, and when they did that, we immediately, uh, Kassam immediately, we saw a video by Kassam immediately after um, showing a sniper attack in uh, Jabalia, where the Israelis said that they had operational control. John, a couple of questions arise from, from that uh, very clear analysis. First, the Golani Brigade is the elite. This is part of the uh, standing army. These aren't, I mean, I don't know, ex I won't claim I know exactly how uh, every element of the Israeli army works, but these are elite soldiers. They're not, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of reservists that have been called up. And they are taking a beating. And we're showing people week after week or show after show some of the, only some of the videos mind you we don't show all of them but they're coming out every single day of the, of tanks being blown up bulldozers being blown up individual soldiers and groups of soldiers being killed and the point i want to put to you is that again israel is claiming that they have uh, operation in fact they use the term regarding jebalia they used, they used the term in Hebrew, complete operational control over Jabalia. And as we know, that they're still getting attacked, and to use your word, smoked in Jabalia. 
Uh, see, I'm picking up a few. I don't know if that's a Canadianism or a John Elmerism, but I picked it up from you. Um, and uh, now that they are expanding throughout, you know, when you look at the maps on some of the TV channels that have more resources than EI and can have these huge moving maps in the studio, <laughs> you see the area where the Israeli forces have entered is now much bigger it's expanded and that makes it look like oh wow the israelis are in in control of even more of gaza that they're making progress what i want to put to you is that that it's the opposite that the more the israelis are in gaza the more opportunities they are giving to the resistance to attack them and the more casualties they are suffering and will suffer. And I am going to support my theory with this observation. We've pointed out that all of the videos released by the Israeli army don't show Palestinians. They show Israeli soldiers shooting down empty hallways, shooting at walls. They had one the other day of them shooting at palm trees. I've seen recent videos of them shooting at rocks. There's all sorts of things the Israelis shoot at, but so far it's not Palestinian fighters. Whereas in every Qassam video or Sarai al-Quds video, we are seeing Israeli soldiers being directly attacked. And that leads me to the conclusion that this is because all of these uh, confrontations are being initiated by the resistance. The resistance is choosing the time and place to engage the Israelis. While the Israelis, there are, there are quotes from Israeli soldiers in the Israeli media saying, we can't see them. The, 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 yeah, we ghosts. don't see where they are. And we don't know what their plans are. So this tells us that the initiative remains with the resistance, and the more the Israelis expand into different parts of Gaza, the more they are giving the resistance opportunities to make them pay a price. Is this a sound analysis? Yeah, and it's true, and it's true by both by the Israeli casualty counts, which are increasing, um, and you can see from the from the resistance field reports that qualitatively the the attacks have increased in sophistication in number um, and in deadly effectiveness and um, killed and wounded. Um, all those numbers have gone up, um, and so as well as gear destroyed. And so I, I I think that these maps that are shown, I think we've talked about them before. Um, they don't seem to really have much. Um, um, connection to the reality of the fight on the ground um, because the Palestinians are using their tunnel network and the Israelis talk about that, how everywhere they go, they're getting hit from behind by tunnels. Um, they're constantly trying to close tunnels that have come up from behind them in complex attacks that the Palestinians are able to use. And um, like we have one more video that will show the the qual the qualitative edge um, that changes is that the when the Israelis have fixed positions, the Palestinians are able to use different weaponry and more powerful weaponry um, than they were on the initial invasion. Um, and so we've seen this video that was released the other day by the Kassam brigades showing the manufacturing 
um, of a 50 caliber um, anti-material rifle, which is a sniper rifle that's large enough, uh, a large enough round to penetrate um, any kind of um, uh, material protection that a soldier would have. Um, and they're, this, they're showing you this uh, construction of the uh, Al Ghul, it's called Al Ghul sniper rifle. This has been a 10 year project within the Gaza Strip um, to make, like their other weapons, to make a copy um, of an existing weapon um, and, and to produce it in Gaza rather than attempting to import it in this area that's completely under siege. So, as Abu Obeda said, um, that they build it with their hands. So this is a copy of an Iranian um, and an Austrian uh, 50 cal sniper rifle um, that the Palestinians have manufactured. And here they're showing, uh, if you can see that, it says Qassam on there because they're showing you that they're making the rounds, um, which is the same, of course, that they do for their rockets. Um, they, they build their own rockets. We know that they build their own anti-tank uh, warheads, multiple types of anti-tank warheads that go in um, their RPG-7s, which is a common um, weapon. And so they're essentially, the Iranians reverse engineered this 50 caliber weapon and then broke down the parts about how to construct it. Um, and they share that knowledge. And then Palestinians are using the same ingenuity that they use to build the tunnel apparatus to build the weapon systems. And they name this, we'll, we'll get into this more uh, on another show when we have more time, but this is named the Al Ghul, which is named after the, um, the Qassam fighter who was, uh, the Qassam leader who was most involved in the building up of the domestic indigenous um, weapons industry. But the, we'll, we'll get more into that later, but they just showed that uh, video yesterday or maybe two days ago, we, I don't know any days anymore. But, but the point of it is, is that once the Israelis are in fixed positions, these kind of rifles become, uh, become part of the uh, fight, whereas previously um, they haven't in the last um, little while. So this is Jabalia, one day after they released the Al Ghul sniper rifle, and you see this tank commander here waving instructions um, to his unit in Jabalia, because as you said, they have uh, complete uh, operational control, which is going to be news to that tank commander that they have operational control. But that's the video that Qassam released the next day. So the day the Israelis say we have operational control, Qassam shows uh, a commander getting hit by a weapon that Qassam has uh, manufactured. Yeah. And just to point own. out, John, that... Uh, of course, the original video has sound, so you hear the sniper rifle go off. But we we have yes. uh, in an in an effort to try to evade the platform censorship, we uh, haven't included the sound, and and that's not nice to. I mean, you know, nobody. I mean, this these are the harsh realities of war, but I think it's important to understand that that. Um, especially because this stuff is not much discussed in uh, English-speaking media. So people aren't necessarily seeing how, just because the Israelis have the F-35s and the F-16s and the Merkava tanks and everything, 
that does not necessarily mean that they have the upper hand in this kind of fight. And as you told us way at the beginning, John, when we didn't all necessarily know what to expect, in urban warfare, the Palestinians would have the upper hand. And, and that's how it's playing out. And again, as a reminder, of course, Israel are the world champions at bombing homes, hospitals, babies, uh, mothers, fathers, grandparents. Israel is the number one champion. And and that really is the, the part of this that no one can or would want to compete with. But it seems to be playing out the way you suggested, which is that the Israelis are having a very tough time in the narrow streets of Gaza City. Yeah, they don't even want to fight in that. They don't, they're not even in that fight. And when you said that earlier about how we don't see Palestinians in their videos, um, the Israelis aren't going looking for them. Their, their videos show them, you know, shooting out the window, uh, just randomly shooting along the horizon into uh, civilian neighborhoods. Um, that we see them uh, saying that they, <clears throat> that, excuse me, that they seize buildings um, that they already bombed months ago. Um, and so they're they're scrambling, looking for any kind of um, s signs uh, that they can put over to their population as victory. But there's there's no no serious military analyst that's saying that Israel is winning this war. There, it's just not happening. It's not like there's two schools of thought on this. Um, there's the brutal massacre and genocide that you're watching, and you're watching them be militarily defeated again on the ground, as we predicted. Um, and, and there's no correlation between military success and their cowardly massacring of civilians. Do we have any other jelly beans that we want to show? Or is that... Is that no, those a... were our two ones for yeah. today, but we'll I, have just, more for next we'll week. We'll have more. Yeah, just to tie this back very quickly before, before we, we close. Of course, the, the military and the political go together. And the longer this war goes on, the harder it is, uh, you know, the, Israel is becoming more desperate to look for an image of victory, which we talked about uh, uh, in previous episodes. And yet the cost to this goes up for this, goes up for them militarily, economically, socially, internationally. And I just wanted to point out, maybe we'll talk about this in more detail next time, but now for the first time, according to the Quinnipiac University poll that just came out uh, two days ago, this is a respected monthly poll in the United States, the number of Americans that support sending military aid to Israel dropped from 54% a month ago, which is not very high to begin with for the United States, to 45% now and slightly more oppose i think it's like 45 to 46 oppose sending the military aid and among you know younger people we've talked about before it's overwhelming opposition to sending military aid now we know we're not living in democracies where our opinions uh translate directly into policy but that is part of the context and and the point i want to make here a good reason for people to keep speaking out Keep up the pressure, keep marching, keep calling, keep making noise. Do not stop talking about Gaza and about Palestine. And uh, 
we actually do have one more last uh, jelly bean for our viewers. Um, yeah, let, uh, I'll just tee it up by saying, um, yeah, this is this this this. Uh, yeah, uh, John, you can you can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a, a a video that was put on uh, on a funny Twitter feed that talked about working from home. Um, you can see what, what's interesting in these videos. First of all, the armored personnel carrier is wheeling it out of town. He's not strolling. Looks like he's trying to get home in a hurry. Um, and one thing that we talked about since the beginning of this war is how Palestinians would use the elevation of the buildings to be able to have different firing positions to hit um, the armored vehicles. Um, and so that's what we're seeing in that video. And, and interestingly, again, we'll talk more about when we have more videos and, yeah. and more time. Um, but it, it appears that they have decided to only use the top or the, only use the second and third floors. They haven't been going up high in the buildings, which is interesting. Um, uh, again, we're, we're not going to know a lot of this stuff until uh, the Qassam fighters explain in the documentaries in the years to come. But mm. Um, but again, all of these videos clearly showing casualties um, that don't match the Israeli casualties uh, that they're publishing. So there's still some question about how that's all going to shake out. But still, just for the record, the Israeli uh, the really admitted death toll is larger than the 2006 war, the 2014 war. Um, so we're going back now to talk about uh, the costliness of this war for Israel. You're going back decades to find, um, and the, the end stages of this war don't appear to be near for the Israelis. So their casualty counts are going to uh, continue to rise. Well, and with that, um, we're going to leave some more videos for, uh, for our next uh, live stream, which uh, because of the holidays next week, we're going to have on Wednesday. So set your calendars or subscribe uh, to get notified on our YouTube page. Um, and we have heard from some of our viewers that, um, that uh, there's going to be, uh, uh, that, that people are asking for closed captioning. And we are working on that. So thank you for that reminder. And, uh, and Nora, just yeah. one thing that we're working on getting closed captioning for the live yes, show. For the live but show. If you watch this later on YouTube, if you watch the recording later, usually after a few hours, YouTube has also automatically added captions. Right. So just in the meantime, but we are working on getting the live captions. Exactly. And I think it's just a matter of toggling the CC icon at the bottom of the video for captions after after the live stream is done. Um, and uh, Asa, we have uh, some comments. I know there are some in the middle of the, the show, but there are some some uh, follow ups. Yeah, we had we had a lot earlier in the show, um, as usual, more than we could ever possibly uh, read out. Um, <laughs> uh let me see uh we we had uh yeah we had a lot of uh jelly bean comments um and we had this we had a lot of support in general um people grateful for the stream a lot of support to our guests earlier in the show um i 
I, I collected some of those. Well, I'm going to send them to the guests because it's, it's nice Great. for the guests to see that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we had a, we had, we had a, a lot of support as usual. Roger will just wrote in a comment earlier as well. He never so, misses an episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's, he's a regular viewer. Thanks Roger. <laughs> and thank you to all of our viewers uh, and our listeners and our readers. Again, go to electronicintifada.net, uh, sign up to get our daily email digest um, and look at our news updates and all of our uh, features and analysis and uh, news briefs that we have up on EI. And uh, on behalf of all of us, thank you so much. Thank you, Tamara, of course behind the scenes, extraordinary producer. Um, and uh, thanks, Ali, and John. I wish everyone uh, who's celebrating a very uh, good Christmas. And uh, as Hamam told us, it's important to be together at this yeah. time of year. And so I know a lot of people say, well, um, you know, celebration at this time of year is difficult with everything going on. But we should celebrate being together. And I think that's an important thing to remind ourselves. It is. And I'm grateful for, for all of you, my esteemed and wonderful colleagues. Thank you so much for another great live stream. And we'll see you all next Wednesday. Be safe, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you.